Well, this may surprise some of you. Um, I don't read only serious stuff. There, are, there is that lighter stuff that makes it into my, my reading list and my, uh, my library. Um, my brother gave me just a few weeks ago for my birthday a copy of Shatner Rules by uh, that literary giant William Shatner. And uh, in it, among many other things that I, I learned and have taken away, uh, one is that we actually live in Shatner's world. We're just privileged, actually. We're just privileged to live in Shatner's world. I don't know if you knew that. Um, it's something of an autobiography uh, of him. He's written several others uh, up to this point, of course, mostly focusing in on his Star Trek thing. Uh, this installment is something just sort of in the last 10 years as he has more shifted the course of his career uh, in, in other areas, but in particular in these talk shows on cable television and doing interviews with people from various walks of life. And there's, there's an observation that he makes in the course of, of that book and in his experience as, as doing interviews that I thought was rather interesting. He says that, you know, as you just sit down and listen to people from whatever walk of life it may be, and you're asking them questions and you're listening to their answers and you're probing and you're pushing and you're trying to get to know them, most people, given enough time, will begin to open up. He found that to be the case in, in every occupation except one. And that was when he sat down to interview comedians, comics. It was as though there was this shell around them, the, the, the ones that he interviewed at least, an impenetrable wall that you, you could not get through. They would not let that guard go down for a minute in some cases because they were just always on, always performing, never, you might say, themselves. And I thought about that a lot, have thought about that a lot, with the news of Robin Williams' suicide this past week. It would seem that, that most in the, in, the, uh, in the national media really don't have a category as to what to do with this. It's so deeply, deeply disturbing for some. I mean, it's, it's disturbing for anyone. But I mean, off the charts for, for, for some, they just don't know how to respond to this, deal with this. big. And I think for two reasons. One is, as it's, I'm paraphrasing, but in essence folks are saying, but he was the source of such joy. Or, perhaps even worse, but he seemed to have such joy. But, but now, you know, you begin to read and things are coming out, you begin to understand that there was a darker side uh, to the man and for some number of, of years. Which, anyway, I just think it raises a question. And maybe it's worth bringing up at the water cooler this week or over the fence or uh, across the dinner table or whatever it may be or in the coffee shop. Is joy possible? You know, given something like that, is, is joy even, is it just a fanciful thing or is, is it possible? And if it is, how is it possible? Okay, well, this is the final, final installment in our uh, series in this uh, study through the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, I'd ask you to turn there now. Uh, Philippians is where we are. We're going to be jumping around all over this letter. Okay, so that's why it says Philippians. That's not a typo. Philippians 1 through 4. I'm not going to be reading 1 through 4, mind you. Um, if you're trying to find it, it's in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels. It's one of Paul's letters. 
It's after the narrative books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then, then Acts, then Romans, and the Corinthian letters, Galatians, and Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, so Philippians, um, I'm just going to read one verse, which in many respects captures something of the whole book. Okay, um, so there's your scripture reading officially. We're going to be looking at some others as we go. But um, Philippians 3, verse 1. Philippians 3, verse, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, these words from Psalm 1, uh, the reminder that the man is blessed who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor who stands in the way of sinners, nor who sits in the seat of scoffers, but who finds delight in the law of the Lord and on your law meditates day and night. And that imagery of being like a, a tree by streams of water with the fruit growing uh, over time, in season, we want that for ourselves. Uh, we really do. Uh, but... At the same time, maybe not as much as we, we say we want it. We, we pursue other things. We seek other streams. We say we want joy, but yet at the same time, there are, there are so many aspects of our lives where we're chasing after things that are surely not going to bring us joy, or we thought they would, whatever it may be. We, we pray that you would help us in these few minutes to have a a clear picture of what that is, um, how it can be, how it can be for us, and not just in a theoretical sense, but in a in a day by day, in a, in a Monday morning sort of way, in a in a dry not dry in a in a wet gloomy uh, Sunday morning here. We pray that you would meet us and speak to us through your Word by your your Spirit. Um, we need this more than we know, and we pray for it now in Jesus name. Amen. Let me, let me mention uh, Robin Williams just one more time. Uh, come back to, to that. Um, I think when you reflect on his life and, and the sad end of his life, I'm going to, in a negative kind of way, in a, in a contrasting kind of way, give you lessons on joy, just, just for about 30 seconds. I think his life shows us that, that joy is not found in temperament. It's not found in personality profiles. Wherever your Myers-Briggs or whatever it is, your, your high E, your high I, whatever, that's not the essence of joy. Okay? Um, nor, nor is it grounded or to be found in the pleasures and experiences of this life. Those things are fine, but that's not where joy is. Uh, nor is joy necessarily to be discovered in grand achievements or awards or the adulation of the masses or whoever is important to you, even if it's just a small group. That's not joy either. You know, how do we know that? Because Robin Williams had all those things, right? And somehow it was enough. And he's not, his story's not unique by any stretch. It's, it's, a, it's a story that's told again and again, a sad story. It's told again and again and again of, of ordinary people who grow up Having, having drunk the Kool-Aid, 
and the, and the story of the Kool-Aid is like this. I know it's a mixed metaphor. Bear with me. Um, that, you know, fame and fortune is where it's at. And if you can have that, you've got it. And then somehow that person, over the course of time, is, is thrust into celebrity status, right? And that's where they are, and that's what they have, and that's what they experience, that fame and fortune. And in time, and sometimes it takes longer for others or shorter than it just depends, and, and then it happens. They hit the wall. They hit that wall. And they become miserable inside and miserable to everyone else around them. And you know why? Because they've come to discover that the glory and glitz that they thought was it is not. And now where are they? And they, they've, they experience this deep, profound frustration and futility. Disappointment and disillusionment, which brings you to a crossroads. What then, what then will you do? Now what's interesting is that the human soul is such that we keep striving. Even when we hit that wall, we, keep, we, keep, we tend to, in most cases, keep striving, keep chasing, keep hungering for this, this something more, this joy. Now, why is that? Why is it we seem to keep chasing? Here's your answer. It's a heady answer, but it's a true answer. We are made by a God who rejoices. We are made by a God who rejoices. We are made in His likeness. We are made in His image. We are created to rejoice, to find joy. It, it, we can't help ourselves. We can't help but pursue it because it's what we've been made to do. Made for rejoicing in fellowship with Him, our Creator. Made for enjoying the good things of this life that He has put around us and then that would direct our praise all the more to Him as the giver. Made for those things. You see, this may shock you. Depending on what and what where you've grown up and what you've been told and what you know how glass how empty half full whatever you are, God intends for us to be joyful. And for some of you, that's going, that message is going to go down really easy. For some of you, you're like, what? No, he's like the you know the the grum, grim face bearded guy up in the cloud. No, no. God intends for us to be joyful. We need to understand then what that means and pursue it. He intends for us to be joyful. We therein need to understand what that means and pursue it. But what does it mean? Well, we're going to talk about that. That's the path to joy. Talk about the path to joy. Three components of it that I think you can see here in this book, uh, this letter uh, to the Philippians, we call it the book of Philippians, three components. First, I want to talk about the, first the reality of joy. What is it? What is it really? Not the pale imitations, but what is it? Secondly, what are the barriers? What are the enemies? What are the thieves of joy? And thirdly, what are the means of joy? Uh, the ways towards joy. All right, so first, let's, let's look at this in turn. The reality of joy. What, what is it? I, I think, again, I want to say this. I can't stress this enough. 
it is surprising what it really is. And we need to let it surprise us again and again and again because I think we tend towards other understandings. Um, First off, it's surprising in, in two ways. First off, it's something commanded. To rejoice is actually a command. It is not just an emotion. Now, emotions are fine. Feelings are fine. We're made with emotions, made with feelings. That's part of what it means to be embodied souls, okay? To have emotions, to have feelings. They are good in and of themselves. They give us windows into the heart. What's going on? What's going on, my soul? Uh, And they're fine. But here's the deal. Joy is not just an emotion that we feel. It is a command that we follow. Joy is not just an emotion that we feel. Biblically speaking, it is a command that we follow. Let me take you back to that verse that we read just a few moments ago. What does Paul say? Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. Or skipping over to chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. This is every bit as much of a command as we have in other places in the Scriptures to love God and love our neighbor, to do works of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is a command to rejoice in the Lord. Joy is not a feeling. It is a command. It is an imperative. It is even, we could go so far as to say, a duty. That's the first thing that's surprising, that it's a commanded thing. The second thing is it's a deeper thing. It's a much deeper thing than our truncated, pale imitation, like wax fruit versions of joy. It's much, much, much deeper. It is biblically, it is a peace, it is a joy, it, well, a peace, a joy, um, I keep doing that, peace, stability, contentment, um, heartfelt satisfaction that is not governed by circumstances because its roots are too deep. Now why? Okay, well, what are its roots? Remember that quote we read earlier from Sproul? Its roots, well, the command is what? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's that's a key component of, of all of this. What does that mean? To rejoice in His presence, the fact that He is with us and will never forsake us, never leave us, never abandon us. Emmanuel, God with us. The great, great promise. Oh, and speaking of promises, not just His presence, but the promise of the gospel that doesn't change. His glorious work, once for all, on the cross, the finished work of Christ, such that we can know that we are forgiven and know that this this ongoing work of His renewing us and changing us and one day will make everything new is real and true. And it's not changing. So whatever else is going on, His presence and His promises are holding you see, that is very different than all the pale imitations of joy. This joy. And now Paul's own experience in, in, in the time where he is writing this letter bears this out. If you've been a part of this series, you know I've said, try to remind us of this time and time again as we've been looking. He's not a tourist in Rome. He is a prisoner. He's writing this under house arrest. Uh, you go back to chapter 1, I'm not going to read it, but verses 15 through 18, we learned that in, in the course of his, being in this house arrest context, he learns of these rivals and how they're dissing him out there in the streets of Rome. And how does he respond to this? Paul says, in essence, I don't care. 
I don't care. Is Christ being proclaimed? That's what I care about. Or if you keep reading, uh, picking up after verses 15 through 18 and pick up in verses 19 through 26, he's facing an uncertain future, an uncertain verdict. He doesn't know. Now we know, because we're on the other side of history, that he did, he was released, and he did go on. It was a fourth missionary journey and other letters that were written and all that. But at that point in Paul's life, he doesn't know. For all he knows, he's, he's going to meet the sword. He speaks of this verdict that he doesn't know, the outcome he doesn't know. But, so how does he respond? I'm okay either way, to live or to die. Either is fine because Christ is all. I'm good with that. Christ is is all. I just as I think about that, and you think in terms of what this is and the stunning nature, the soaring nature of what Christian joy is meant to be, we need to redefine our understanding. We need to, to, to shift it, let the scripture shift it for us. Delve into it and let it shift and be changed. Um, talked about this a few weeks ago. This thing that is commanded, this thing that is so much deeper, it means that joy and sorrow are not, though they look so different, and really they are, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. Meaning, they can coexist in the life of the Christian at the same time. Do we not see it with Paul? Joy and sorrow. J.I. Packer puts it this way, in a a, a piece that he wrote, um, that somehow, in the wonder of God's ways, through the the glory of the gospel, Christians are given larger souls, is the way he puts it. Larger souls that because of the grace of the gospel are now able to contain both joy and sorrow at the same time in ways that otherwise we never could. Never could. It's a stunning thing to consider, and it's again why I say God intends for us to be joyful. We need to understand what that means and pursue it. Which then takes us to the second point, because, you know, if this is so grand, if this is so glorious, if it's so wondrous and beautiful and a thing that we would would think want, you also understand there are barriers to it. There are things that that choke it. There are thieves of, of joy. And the book of Philippians speaks to something of that, explicitly and implicitly too. Now, so what, what are the chief barriers to joy? Well, believe it or not, it's not, the, the, the chief barrier to joy is not grief and sorrow. That's the opposite of joy, but it's not the thief or, or the barrier to it. The thief or, and barrier to joy is fear and anxiety. That's what chokes the life out of joy. That's what kills it. Fear and anxiety. Well, where does that come from then? That deep, deep sense of worry. Three things I think I'll just call attention to, and maybe there are others, but just for time's sake, I'll give you three. Moral guilt would be one. Um, Before God. And whether you're thinking in terms of sin, that is uh, missing the mark or falling short or transgression, actually crossing the line, um, 
that and the guilt we feel over that unconfessed and don't know what to do, deal, don't know how to deal with it, don't know, don't aren't convinced of the wonders of the gospel and the grace of Christ, it chokes joy. Guilt and shame choke out joy. It doesn't, it doesn't so much kill the relationship. The relational dynamics in there are such that it 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 the relationship is still there. It's just that we're not experiencing the wonder and beauty of it. As though the communication has been clogged between us and the Lord. I'll get to the, the remedy for that in just a minute. That's one. Moral guilt. It chokes joy. It's a barrier to joy. Another is this, what I'll call misplaced hope. Is another enemy, another barrier uh, to joy. No few author that I read this past week on this topic cited this text. So I feel like we need to go there. Luke chapter 10, and, and just reading this short account, uh, Jesus, he's, he has sent out the, the 72 of his followers on what you could call a short-term missionary trip. They come back, there's a debriefing, okay? And in verses 17 through 20, we, we hear something, we're listening in, eavesdropping, uh, on this debriefing, and it's, it's very interesting when you think about what Jesus is saying here and try and apply it to our own lives, the 72, this is verses 17 through 20, Luke 10. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is Jesus warning his followers of? Do not put your joy in success, in even ministry success, in the accomplishments of what are good goals, even of themselves. Your joy needs to be in your, not in your the success of your service, but in your standing with me. Because the success, the outcome is elusive. You can't control that. You have no idea the outcome of those things, what will come tomorrow. But I have you. You're mine. Rejoice in that. Come back to that in a few minutes. Third thing, not just uh, these enemies, these barriers to joy, moral guilt, misplaced hope, but what I'll call misunderstanding. A misunderstanding of the dynamics just of life, the way it is, the frustration, the, that, 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 the angst of, of, you know, our experience is that we go through trials, we go through times of testing where the Lord intends to strengthen our faith, we go through times of discipline and His chastening hand, that's the experience. It's very common. What's our assumption in the midst of that experience? That He's left us. That He's abandoned us. That He's forsaken us. It's just the opposite of what's going on. See, my friends, these, these, these are all barriers. These are all enemies. These are all joy killers. Moral guilt, misplaced hope, misunderstanding um, it, 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 it are, 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 are fueling our fear. Take, it, it, these things taking our focus off of Christ, fueling our fears. Some of you have heard this acronym. 
J-O-Y. J-O-Y. You know, if, and if you, you will get those things in order, you will experience something of joy. And there's some truth to that. Jesus, others, you. Put another way, there's only one way to spell joy. You mix those letters around, you've warped and twisted it into some monstrosity. Unrecognizable. Here's the deal. You and I are all remedial spellers. We can't even get this three-letter word right. How does Paul spell joy? Well, it's implicit in the bookends of the book. Let's look at the very beginning and the very end. How does Paul spell joy? You can't miss it. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the greeting that sets the tone for everything that's coming in the letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of, I'm going to do a little emphasis here, Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Paul spell joy? If you didn't catch it, let's go to the end because bookends come in pairs. Philippians 4, verse 23, the very end. As we said during as the benediction last week, this is the last thing that that assembled congregation, the first time there in the church in Philippi, hears as that elder is standing up there reading this letter to the congregation. What do they hear? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How does Paul spell joy? Jesus Christ, a focus on him, preeminent, Christ preeminent. That's how Paul spells joy. So I would say then, if we're trying to think through these barriers and how they are joy killers and how they affect our hearts and our lives, we need to examine our hearts and our lives. Think through, question ourselves, interrogate ourselves. Ask for the Lord's help in this regarding these three things. For instance, with moral guilt. Jerry Bridges puts it this way, the uh, joy, uh, where is it? The fruit of joy, the fruit of joy cannot grow in the soil of sin. The fruit of joy cannot grow in the soil of sin. It's not going to happen. So then I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, before the Lord, where in my life are there attitudes and actions for which I need to, from which I need to turn? Because the fruit of joy is not going to grow in the soil of sin. Moral guilt, misplaced hope. You know, there may be some good things that you're striving after. Good goals for Jesus. Fine. But pursue Him first. Now, where might you be getting tripped up in that? And are you okay with the outcome not going according to your planner? The only way you will be is if you're following Jesus. And so the outcome's in His hands. And so you're okay with how it goes. The third one, that, that misunderstanding, you know, the erroneous assumptions that we have, we may need to peel it back. You know, you feel cut off right now. You feel abandoned right now. You feel forgotten and forsaken by the Lord because 
you say, of this, this discipline, because of this chastening, because of this trial, because of this testing, my friends, don't you understand? That's not evidence of a lack of love for you. That is precisely evidence of his love for you. He hasn't taken his hand off of you. It just all feels a little heavy right now. But it's there. You see, we need to... God intends, as I said before, God intends for us to be joyful, although we need to understand what that means. What does it mean to be people of joy? And then to pursue that. Lastly, okay, so if this thing is so real, this thing is so beautiful... So remarkable, yet there are these joy killers, these enemies, these barriers. How then do we chase after it? How is it overcome? Again, I will take you back to that simple clause, that simple command. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Packer, great quote that he has in that piece. It's, there's another quote. I'm not going to read it. There's another quote there in the quotes and notes, but this is part of that same article. Joy, listen to what he says, joy is a habit of the heart. Induced and sustained as an abiding quality of one's life through the discipline of rejoicing. I'm going to read that again because I know it cuts against the grain of probably everyone in this room. Joy is a habit of the heart. Induced and sustained as an abiding quality of one's life through the discipline of rejoicing. Translation. Rejoicing in Christ. Intentional, conscious focus on Christ and the gospel is what the Holy Spirit delights to use to bring about the fruit of joy in our life. Well, what does that look like to intentionally Rejoice in Jesus. Let me just throw three at you real quickly. And every one of these three are counterpoints to those enemies, to those barriers I mentioned in point two. Okay? Sort of checking them, pushing, pushing against them, if, if, if you will. All right? So the first would be instead of that, in re response to that moral guilt, focusing on Christ. The, the beauty of the thing, the gospel, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel, the gospel of grace, frees us, when you understand it, frees us to confess our sin. He already knows we're completely safe to open up before Him and to lay it out. To lay it out before Him. And indeed, I would also add this, that the wonder and beauty of the Gospel is such that as we comprehend who Jesus is and what it is that He has done for us, the pull of sin will be far eclipsed by the beauty of our Savior. The more we see Jesus, the greater He becomes and the lesser the pull of sin is as well. That's the way it works if we will but fix our eyes on Him. All else is drowned out as noise. So focus on Christ, pushing back against that misplaced hope. Well, and serving Christ. I alluded to, all this, to that already, but serving Him and not success. Serving Him and not the outcome, trusting Him and our standing with Him and serving out of our standing with Him and knowing that no matter what happens, nothing's going to change as far as that is concerned. Thirdly, 
in response to that misunderstanding, especially in those harder times in the in the uh, trials and tribulations and the testing and the discipline and the chastening, trusting Christ, knowing that in all circumstances, no matter how it may seem to us at the time, everything's under His control. Everything is under His control. And as far as His purposes are concerned for us, they are always no matter how bad and ugly and how you cannot see it in the moment, it is for our higher good, our greatest good. And trusting in Him, leaning into Him with that. But again, rejoicing is a discipline, as Packer says. It is a habit of the heart. We have to rejoice in Christ if we're going to experience the joy of Christ. Maybe I can go a little further in terms of application. How do you see that flowing out of, and just practically speaking, in the book of Philippians? Let me give you three examples real quickly. In chapter 2, Paul shows us that as we um, sink our roots into the gospel, the fruit of that is a serving a heart of service. As for, you know, you look at the Christ hymn, right? There, uh, chapter 2, verses um, 5 and following, where he speaks of Jesus as the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate self-abasement. Why? For us. That You take that to heart, it frees you to serve others. That's the fruit of that. Or, or chapter 3 as Paul is speaking of the wonder of how he has left all this, all his past behind and all his self-righteousness and self-dependence and self-everything behind for Jesus. And the glory of the gospel is impelling him to pursue Jesus and want to know him more. It's all he wants. It's the chief desire of the man's heart. Or chapter 4, how the gospel impels and fuels and enables Reconciliation between estranged parties. Remember Yodia and Syntyche and that, that terrible strife between them that apparently was even affecting the, the broader church? It's the gospel that speaks to that. But you say, but how? How? But I, Okay, that, I see how that plays out, but how do I... Okay, I'll get even more practical if I can. And that is... And this is not original to me. Please, please don't mistake this as being some brilliant insight on my part. It's just that the means of grace, you know, you've heard of the means of grace, are also the means of joy. Time in the Word and prayer. The celebration of the sacraments. Rubbing up shoulders with brothers and sisters in, in Christ. The fellowship of the saints. Service unto God. All those things He works to grow our joy, to enable us to all the more rejoice in Him that we might experience and taste of this fruit of joy that the Spirit in His own time will bring about. Again, God intends for us to be joyful. Oh, that we would understand what that means and pursue it. In closing, I just want to say a couple things. I can make a couple points wrapping this up. First off, one, Joy is only possible for true Christians. I'm going to say this again. 
Joy is only possible for true Christians. That's not a boastful or arrogant claim. It's just a factual statement. Especially when you understand what I'm talking about, what the Scriptures are talking about when it defines joy as this deeper thing. That's the first point. The second, following from it, joy is what makes Christianity credible to the watching world. You see, an unjoyful Christian is false advertising. Okay? Joy makes the faith credible, winsome, to a world that sees other mortal human beings walking around, experiencing and living out of the very thing the rest of the world is starving and desperately longing to find and experience. That is so different, Christian joy, that is so powerfully, remarkably, drastically different than all the pale imitators. I'll give you an example. It's not the same as euphoria. Here's your public service announcement for all you college football fans. It's coming. And some of you are already reading the predictions. You're you're, you're looking at where your team is slated to go. (sighs) Okay, please hear me. You'll thank me later. You'll rise up and call me blessed. (laughs) Hear me now. It'll save you pain later. Don't buy the hype. Your team will fail you. Okay? Even the Virginia Tech Hokies. I hate to to disabuse you of that illusion. I'll take you back to 1999 when the Hokies played in the national championship. Okay? And, and you know, if you, I was bleeding maroon and orange. I caught the fever. What a season that was. And they nearly did it. Third quarter. They're leading. And they lost. And I was crushed. Seriously, I was in the dumps for weeks after that. Kept going back. Did they really lose? Did that play go? No, yeah. See, this joy can't be touched. That's my point. This joy can't be touched because it's tied to something much, much deeper. It can't be touched. R.C. Sproul, in that little booklet that he wrote, I've quoted from already, he tells a couple of stories. Um, one is of, of, a, of a dear Christian lady uh, who is in the hospital for cancer treatments, chemotherapy. He goes to visit her, and she says, Dora, how are you doing? And, and she just looks at him and says, with tears, says, R.C., it's hard to be a Christian with your head in the toilet. But then she said that and started to laugh as the joy comes back into her eyes. Another story he tells of, of, of another lady also going through cancer treatments, and he came into her room, and he said, how, how are you doing? And she handled that answer in 15 seconds and then shifted the subject to him and said, no, how are you doing? And for the next 30 minutes, she kept the topic on him. He, and he unloaded. He goes into the room expecting to encourage and comfort and comes away encouraged and comforted. And you know, I hear stories, and I know people, I've had experiences like that with others, and I know some of you have too. And I come away from those times, and I come away from this time and this study here in in this letter, and this is what comes to my mind. I want to grow here. 
I want to know that kind of joy. I want to know this Jesus who is on the one hand the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and yet on the other hand lived a life of such joy the world has never seen at the same time. I want to know him. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, we sing songs of joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. We sing joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. And well, we sure these songs, these hymns that really spill out of the psalms themselves. You guide us there. You encourage us there to sing and meditate upon such things because You've made us for this. You made us to long for this. And we thank You that even while we are so often chasing in the wrong directions to find it and experience it, You've pursued us and tracked us down and open the way, the path for joy in Jesus. And I pray that we would seek that. You're the only place we're going to find it. We pray, pray that you would help us seek that in you, to know that in you. And oh, that the world would see you in the joy you give us and be drawn to you because of that joy that is seen in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.